not, there should be one in front of you or below you. I'd like you to take it out and find Luke 18. Luke 18. This is a passage we looked at not too long ago when we went through the Gospel of Luke. And I resisted the temptation to go back to my notes and just pull up my notes from a couple years ago and preach the same thing. So I left them alone and I studied and I worked things up. And uh, there's some parallels with what we talked about last time. And then there's some other things that I came across and thought about this week that are a little bit different. Luke 18, we're talking about parables on Sunday morning during the summer. And I just want to start out by reminding you what a parable is. A parable is a story taken from everyday life, real life, that teaches a moral or a spiritual truth. So parables are different than allegories. Allegories are sort of like secret messages in story form, where you take every detail, every character, every sort of mention of anything in the story, and you decode it. So you end up saying, this is a story about such and such, but it's really not about such and such. It's about something completely different. That's really not what a parable is. There's nothing to decode in a parable. Parables are not uh, like fables. Fables sort of live in the the realm of fantasy where you have things happening that don't really happen in everyday life, and that's not what parables are. Parables are just sort of plain, ordinary stories taken from everyday life. And Jesus used parables to teach moral and spiritual truths. And we talked about last week, he did not use parables just to make it easy for us to understand. But many times he used parables not only to reveal truth to certain people, but also to conceal truth from other people. Sometimes Jesus used parables to challenge people to think to use their own minds in figuring out what the Scripture said. Sometimes he used parables to sort of make a distinction between those who really wanted to learn and those who were just out to test him or to challenge him. And so we're looking at parables, and we've come to one of the most famous parables. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And there's a few details I just want to go over. These are on your notes before we jump in and talk about it. First of all, I want you to notice that Luke tells us right from the get-go, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who treated others with contempt. It's always important when Jesus is speaking to understand who he's talking to. Is he talking to his closest friends? Is he talking to the Pharisees? Is he talking to the crowds? Because the points that he, make, that he makes and the applications that he makes are usually driven to a specific audience. And in this parable, you just got to wrap your brain around this. He's really talking to people who trusted in themselves that they could be righteous before God. That they could do something to earn their way with God. And who were so prideful in their own righteousness that they treated other people with contempt. They looked down on other people, which made themselves, of course, feel much better. So just think about the two characters quickly. First, the Pharisee. Pharisees were one of the most respected and influential groups in Israel. Not necessarily powerful, because power sort of implies a a position where you have authority. And they didn't so much have authority as they just had influence Because so many people respected them. They were not a political party, but a religious group. There was about 3,000 of them in Jesus' day. And these were the guys who devoted their life to keeping 
the law of God. So they're respected and they're influential. They're the theological conservatives who devoted their life to obeying the Mosaic law. If I could just put it in very short form, okay? I know we don't think this way, but you've got to get it in your brain this way to understand the point Jesus is making. The Pharisees are the good guys. And I know that when you read the New Testament, you've read it, you know how it ends, you've heard Sunday school lessons and sermons, you hear Pharisee and immediately you think, that's the bad guys. But just putting yourself in the position of the people that Jesus is talking to. When Jesus says there was a Pharisee, they immediately think, oh, that's the good guy. That's the hero of the story. On the other hand, you have the tax collectors. Tax collectors were one of the most hated and powerful groups in Israel. Hated, you know, because most of them were Jewish. They worked for Rome, who most of the Jews hated, and they worked for Rome, taking taxes from their own people, and they stole, they were dishonest, they cheated, they took more than they were supposed to. Rome didn't care that they did any of these things as long as Rome got their cut. You line your pockets with as much money as you can on your own side, and that's exactly what they did. They were hated, and they were powerful. They had an official position where they had authority from the Roman government to collect these taxes from their own people, recognized as traitors who regularly stole from their own people. Now look, I know you know kind of who the Pharisees are, and I know you're probably familiar with tax collectors. And I bring it up, even though it's an obvious couple of details, just to remind you, just to say to you, when I teach this parable, when I preach on this parable, it's impossible for me to recreate the shock and the offense that the original audience would have heard and felt. Like when they heard Jesus set this story up and he says, once upon a time there was a Pharisee and a tax collector, they immediately think, Pharisee, good guy, tax collector, bad guy. And then Jesus tells a story where he flips the script 180 degrees. They would have been shocked that Jesus flipped the script in that way, and they also would have been deeply offended that he flipped the script in that way. I tried to think of what could I do to sort of create that sort of shock, <laughs> that sort of offense. Maybe you could say, you know, once upon a time there was a police officer and there was a child predator. And then you flip the script and you make the predator the good guy and the police officer the bad guy. If I told a story like that, you wouldn't like the story. That's not how good stories go. Or maybe I could say, look, once upon a time there was two guys. One was a Marine and one was a terrorist. And then I tell the story and I flip it and I make the terrorist the good guy and the Marine the bad guy. You say, that's a terrible story. I don't like that story. Tell us a different story. That's what Jesus is doing here. And it's impossible for us because we're so far removed and we're a different culture and we don't understand. It's impossible for us to sort of recreate the shock and the disgust and the outrage that these people would have felt when Jesus tells a story and he says there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. And he makes the Pharisee the villain and he makes the tax collector the hero. But you've got to understand what Jesus is trying to say and the point that he's trying to make. He's talking to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Here's the big idea of the passage. It's really simple. Jesus wants us to have an accurate understanding of ourselves, 
so that we might be humble before God. He wants you and I to have an accurate understanding of who we are so that as we approach God in worship, as we approach God in prayer, as we approach God as our Father, we're appropriately humble. Let's read the passage, Luke 18. We're going to read verse 9 to 14. Scriptures say this, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, give us insight this morning. Give us wisdom this morning. Give us discernment as we listen to a familiar story. Father, we pray that the familiarity of this story would not prevent us from seeing truth and would not prevent us from applying it to our lives. Father, we pray that as we spend the next few minutes thinking about your word and thinking about ourselves and thinking about what you have done for us through Christ, that it would prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story works off a contrast, right? Two characters, very different men, very different approaches to God. And you've got to understand a little bit about this Pharisee and how he approaches God and a little bit about the tax collector and how he approached God to then walk away and make some application of the story. So we're going to walk through each character, talk about the Pharisee, and we're going to talk about the tax collector. And I just want to encourage you, maybe challenge you. As we talk about the Pharisee, You've read the story, you've heard me preach about this passage before, you've heard it in Sunday school, you've read it, you know it. You are tempted at this point to now view the Pharisee as the villain, right? The original hearers, they think Pharisee, good guy, and Jesus is challenging that. Your temptation now is to think Pharisee, bad guy. And your temptation is to think, I, I'm not anything like that Pharisee. Thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. And as we talk about what the Pharisee says and how he approaches God, I just want to challenge you, maybe encourage you, to be open to the possibility that you and I are a little bit like the Pharisee. We don't want to admit that. I'm not going to ask you to fill in any blank and put your, like, land in equals Pharisee and write it out on your form. That would be too humiliating. So we won't go that far. But just be open to the possibility that maybe you have some tendencies that would cause you to line up with this Pharisee. So, a couple of observations. Number one, this guy is self-absorbed. Totally self-absorbed. Five times 
in his prayer, he uses the word I. I, 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 I. Everything he says focuses on who he is and the good things that he thinks he has to offer to God. Totally self-absorbed. You and I make that observation and we say, man, that's, that's not me at all. Just to remind you, we're the people who invented social media. And you say, no, no. We have all those things because we want to stay connected with each other. It's relationships. It's about other people. Huh. Go to lunch after church. Just look around at the tables of people sitting with their friends and their family members staring at their phones. And tell me if you think they look connected to other people. Ignoring the person right across the table staring at their phone. I'm guilty. I'm not throwing stones that don't need to be thrown at me. I'm just, look, we're self-absorbed people. If you don't think so, just get on Facebook, get on Twitter, get on some of these things for 10 minutes and see who it's about. It's about us. We're self-absorbed people. And you may have the the sort of self-awareness to say, well, when I come to God, I'm not going to be so focused on me. But the root issue may be an issue in your life that you're totally self-absorbed. And if you are, that changes the way that you approach God. It changes the way this Pharisee approached God. Second, and this is to me the most comical part of the whole story, he finds comfort in comparison. He finds comfort in comparing himself to other people. And the reason I think it's funny is that the comparison game he plays is totally rigged. It's not a fair fight from the get-go. Right? This guy's a Pharisee. He's devoted his life to keeping the Mosaic Law. And when he decides to play the comparison game, he finds the person that he thinks that everyone else agrees is the biggest scumbag in town. And that's the person he chooses to compare himself to. He doesn't compare himself to the high priest. He doesn't compare himself to a fellow Pharisee or a Levite. He picks the biggest loser he can find. And then he has the audacity to come before God and to pat himself on the back and say, good news, I'm not as bad as that guy. Which is the equivalent of saying in his mind, I'm not the worst person in Jerusalem. There's at least one person worse than me. And he feels like that justifies himself before God. It's a totally, totally rigged game. I'm going to give you a little illustration to help you understand how, how foolish this is. Okay? Here's your Emmanuel staff. Okay? I just want you to imagine that the Emmanuel staff goes on a camping trip. And it's guys only. So take the ladies off. Okay? Guys only. <laughs> ladies are not invited. Okay? Guys only. We're going camping. And I want you to imagine that on this camping trip, we're there, you know, you got the, the campfire and the tents and all the stuff, a bear attacks the campsite, okay? Bear attack. I'm 100% confident that I am not going to get killed by the bear, okay? 100% confident. And it's not because I'm fast, because I am not fast. Slowness is wired into my body. I could tell you about fourth grade, the track meet, this is like an emotional scar. I'm going to get on the therapy couch here, okay? Fourth grade, track meet. 
Everybody has to race, and everybody gets paired off, and you're racing this person, you're racing this person. And somehow I fell down to the last spot, and I had to race against a girl, Katie McCracken, in the fourth grade. I will never forget. 100-yard dash. And I thought, she's a girl. I'm going to beat a girl. And so I'm running my mouth, running my mouth, ready, set, go. And she smoked me. It wasn't even close. So I'm telling you, I'm slow. Super, super, super slow. I have no thought that I can outrun a bear. I just think I can outrun some of these guys. (laughs) So let me give you an example, okay? Chris Harrington. If you know anything about Chris Harrington, if we go on a staff camp out, he's going to buy a special pair of tennis shoes for the camp out before we go. Brand new pair of tennis shoes. And he's going to be so worried about getting those clean tennis shoes in mud. I got Chris beat easy, so take Chris off. He's gone. What about Tyler? Tyler, Tyler. Thought about making a short joke about Tyler here. But then, in my Bible reading this week, I came across the story of Absalom, just in my daily Bible reading. I read about Absalom. You remember that story where he's running away in battle, like he is running for his life, and his hair gets caught in the tree, and he's hanging in the tree? Easy. Take Tyler off. What about Hunter? Hunter. I had some prepared comments about Hunter's old glory days in football, and I'm not going to go there. Um, Hunter and I actually have a running joke about who's faster, and Hunter thinks he's faster than me, and we've never had a race, but he's confident that he's faster than me. He did used to play football, and he's, man, I'll smoke you any time. But here's the thing. Yesterday, me and Hunter were over at the Westfall's house doing some demolition, And we're swinging sledgehammers, and we're knocking walls down. And I take a big old swing, and this two-by-four comes down. And about this far from me, there's a snake sitting right here on the board, alive, looking at me in the face. And I got out of there before Hunter did. So I know I'm faster than Hunter. I know I can beat him because I got out of there faster than he did. So take Hunter off. Now it's down to me and Corey. And I don't have any big joke here other than to say Corey's almost crippled and he's about to have foot surgery and he's going to have one of those cute little scooters that I thought those were only for old ladies. I don't know, but he's going to have one of those little scooters rolling around church. And so there's no way Corey's going to beat me in a foot race, which means you take Corey off and I'm the last man standing. How foolish would I be to stand up and say, because of that process of elimination, I am somehow fast. That's a rigged game. All you're saying, not that you can outrun a bear, just that you can outrun some other guys. Listen, that's the rig game the Pharisees playing, right? He picks the most despicable human being he can think of. Unjust people, extortioners, murderers, even like this tax collector. And at least I'm not as bad as him. You and I are prone to do the same thing. I know some of you may set the bar so high and you're despairing and you never feel like you measure up and that's the struggle for some of you. But I think for most of us, the temptation is to look around and to find somebody who's not doing as much spiritual stuff as we are and to say, well, I'm at least better than that person. It could be worse. And then 
to have the audacity to pat ourselves on the back for it. And essentially what you're saying is, I'm not the worst. And that's what this guy does. He finds comfort in comparison, and he shouldn't. The last thing you need to know about this Pharisee is he ignores the holiness of God. And this, to me, is the greatest mistake that he makes. Did you notice the detail Luke includes in verse 10? Two men went into the temple. Why did they go to the temple? To pray. Go to the temple to pray. And you can read again for yourself what actually comes out of the Pharisee's mouth. Let's just all agree it's not prayer. It is not prayer. Just because you call something prayer doesn't make it prayer. The essence of prayer is coming before God in humility and acknowledging your dependence on him and your need for him. That's prayer in a nutshell. He's not doing anything remotely close to that. He comes and he has the audacity to quote-unquote pray to God and the prayer is basically a lecture. You understand this is the exact opposite of what we saw last week in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah and the angels are in God's presence and Isaiah is falling down on his face confessing his sin and even the sinless angels are covering their face and their feet out of reverence and respect for God and they're confessing God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and Isaiah is confessing his sin and then you see the Pharisee who's coming into the temple into God's presence to pray And what comes out of his mouth is a lecture to God about his own goodness. He has absolutely no understanding or no category for the idea that God is holy. And it changes the way that he approaches God. What about the tax collector? We'll be more brief. He's focused on God. He comes to pray and he prays. It's not long. It's not flowery. It's not filled with long theological terms. But he prays. He talks to God. God. Listen, the Pharisee talks at God. He's not having a conversation with God. He's just talking at God. The tax collector comes and he's talking to God. Second, he confesses his sins. It's interesting that most of our translations read, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But what he literally says is, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He didn't need to include that article in there, but he includes it essentially to say, I'm the A number one worst, which is interesting because the Pharisee thinks that the tax collector is the worst, and the tax collector thinks that the tax collector is the worst. He's focused on God, he confessed his sin, and he begged for mercy. And I want you to understand this when he begs for mercy. He says, be merciful to me. So I want you to understand, he's not just trying to weasel out of a predicament. Like, he's not just trying to sneak by by the skin of his teeth so to speak he's acknowledging one of God's central attributes look what we read in the book of Exodus 34 6 the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord the Lord a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness God says to Moses one of the core pieces to knowing me is to knowing me as the God who's merciful And when this tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, he's not just saying, oh, just let it go, it's no big deal. He's appealing to God's self-revelation. God's saying, this is what I'm like. I am merciful. And the tax collector's acknowledging that, and he's asking God for this mercy. Look, 
is two different ways to approach God. And you've got to just look at this if you're going to take the parable in and say, which one looks more like me? On the one hand, you have someone who's totally, totally self-absorbed. Somebody patting themselves on the back because at least they're not the worst. And somebody who has no category of the idea that God is a holy God. On the other hand, you have somebody who actually comes before God focusing on God. You have somebody coming and confessing his sin before God. You have somebody acknowledging that he needs mercy from God. He doesn't want what God should give him, what he deserves, but he wants God to give him mercy. How do we apply it? Let me give you a few thoughts and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. How do we apply this parable? Number one, the parable is an invitation to think like the tax collector. It's an invitation to think like this tax collector. To focus on God, to confess your sin, to seek God and His mercy. That's what Jesus is inviting you to do this morning. Just to clarify from a negative standpoint, if you leave thinking, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee, you missed it. And I think that's the temptation for a lot of us. Like We make the, the same mistake the Pharisee made. He looked around and he found the most despicable person he could find. And he said, I'm glad I'm not like that. And how easy it is for us to read this story and to say, clearly Jesus says he's about the worst of the worst. At least I'm not like that. Or maybe to think about people that you think are like that. And that's not the point of it at all. It's not so that you can walk away patting yourself on the back saying, I am so glad I'm not like that Pharisee. On the other hand, if you walk away completely focused on your sin, I think you miss the point. If you walk away just totally consumed and wrapped up and devastated by your own sin, and you never move from your sin to God's mercy, you've totally missed the point of the parable. And for some of you, that's the temptation, is to say, well, I'm just the worst. I'm I'm like the Pharisee and the tax collector rolled into one. I'm the worst of the worst and God could never love me and could never forgive me and I just feel so guilty and so miserable and I'm the worst. And listen, the the irony in that is if you walk away completely focused on how bad you are, you're still making the same mistake the Pharisee made. He comes before God totally focused on his goodness. Don't make the mistake of coming before God and being totally and only focused on your badness. Either way, you're focused on you. And the point of the parable is that you would be honest about your sin and humble before God, but that you would see the gospel of Jesus Christ as beautiful and that you would run to God's mercy. The heart of the gospel is what the Bible says about justification, and that's the next blank on your outline. Justification is the result of God's mercy for those who are humble. It's the result of God's mercy for those who are humble. Those who humbly confess their sin and humbly put their faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says God's response to that kind of humility, humility that acknowledges, acknowledges sin and humility that confesses faith in Jesus is justification. Some of you may have heard someone explain the idea of justification like this. 
sort of a play off the word, justification. God treats you just as if, justification, just as if you never sinned. That's a fine idea biblically, but it's not what justification means. So if you have that in your brain, if some preacher said it or a teacher or you read it in a book, just scrub that from your memory banks. Justification is not God treating you just as if you never sinned. Justification is God treating you just as if you always obeyed perfectly all the time in every situation. In all your actions, and all your words, and all your thoughts, and all your emotions. It's God making a legal declaration about your standing before Him. Where God says, making this legal declaration, I'm counting your sin as paid for at the cross, and I'm counting the perfect, complete, full obedience and righteousness of Jesus as counting for you. It's not just as if you never sinned. It's just as if you always did everything that Jesus ever did. And it's this declaration that God makes that completely changes your standing with him. Look, justification is not some spiritual lightning bolt that comes down and zaps you and turns you into some sort of monk or holy person or you never say anything bad, you never do anything bad, you never think anything bad. That's not what it is. It is a declaration that God makes saying you are a sinner, but because you've humbly acknowledged your sin and you've humbly put your faith in Jesus, I'm counting your sin as paid for at the cross and I'm counting his righteousness as yours. That's justification. It goes all the way back to the Apostle Paul. And if you just want to trace it through church history, it goes all the way back to the Protestant reformers. You may or may not know that this year, 2017, is the 500th anniversary of the year on October 31st that Martin Luther took his 95 theses, his objections to the Catholic teaching about salvation, and he nailed them to the church door in Wittenberg and he started the Protestant Reformation. In the fall, you should check out Wednesday nights in our youth, in our adult Bible study. We're going to talk about the five solas of the Reformation. What was it that the Reformers taught 500 years ago that was so important that changed the whole trajectory of church history? We're going to talk about all these ideas, the five solas in the fall, but this morning we're just talking about justification. And I just want you to see what Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, says about the doctrine of justification. He says this, the doctrine, the truth about justification. It's the chief article from which all our other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without the doctrine of justification, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Look, this is a smart guy telling you, if you go off the rails on this doctrine, you've completely lost what it means to follow Jesus. You've completely lost it. Justification. A sinner confesses their sin, not making any excuses, just confesses their sin and looks to what Jesus Christ did on the cross for salvation. Looks in faith. Looks believing that what Jesus did counts for them. And God's response to that is justification. Declaring you righteous. Your sin was paid for at the cross and the righteousness of Jesus is now yours. And your standing with me has now changed forever. It will never go back. It's changed. You didn't work for it. You didn't earn it. It's justification 
by faith alone in Christ alone. It's the heart of the gospel. And Jesus says here, if you're the guy coming totally self-absorbed, lecturing God, ignoring his holiness, patting yourself on your back that you're not the worst, you're not going to be justified. There's no justification in that approach to God. But if you will focus on God as God and you will confess your sin before him and you will seek mercy from God, there is justification for you. And he says it's the tax collector that went down to his house justified. I'll be honest with you. I have books in my office and I have commentaries that I read. Some theologians think that this idea of justification is just a little bit too good to be true. Some of them even make the argument that if justification were true, then God is a liar. It's an interesting argument. They point to Bible verses. They don't just make it up out of thin air. They point to verses like Numbers 14, 18 that says, He will by no means clear the guilty. And they say, how can this this judge of the universe declare people righteous when they're really not righteous? He knows it. They know it. Everybody knows it. How can he make that declaration? Some of them call the idea of justification a legal fiction. It's just a fantasy. And they turn around and they say, you're going to have to work for it at the end of the day. We don't think that you've got to work for it. The New Testament is clear that you can't work for it. And if you get to the point where you say, wait a minute, this is a tricky verse. How will God not clear the guilty but then declare me to be righteous? How can he be a good judge and uphold justice and still say that me, a sinful person, is righteous in his sight? How can that happen? The answer is the ultimate Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. That's how. It's not God just playing legal games. It's not just God writing legal fictions and telling you that you're something when you're not something. This is God saying what Jesus did on the cross really mattered, and it mattered for you if you put your faith in him. And what he did in his life of obedience, keeping the law of God, fulfilling the law of God, it really mattered, and it matters for you when you put your faith in him. Look, our hope in justification is not that God's just going to snap his fingers and make it so, but our hope in justification is that Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection made it so. And what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is Jesus. That's the last idea on your outline. The Lord's Supper reminds us that our justification flows from the work of Jesus on the cross. Be done with any idea that when you take the Lord's Supper, you're coming to tell God how great you are or how good you've been in the last week or at least you weren't as bad as someone else you know. That's not what we're doing. We take the Lord's Supper as God's people together. We're saying our focus is on you. We know that we're sinful people and we are thankful for the mercy that you showed us in sending Jesus to live for us and to die for us and that Through his work on the cross, we can be justified. We can be made right in your sight. Our standing before you has been completely changed. Not because of who we are or what we can do or what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. If you are a follower 
of Jesus. If you love Jesus and you believe the gospel, you've obeyed Christ's command to be baptized, we would love for you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus, as the elements come by and we pass them out, we just ask that you let them pass by. Nobody's looking, nobody's taking notes on who participates. We just ask that you let them pass by, and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you spend the time thinking about your relationship with God and how you are approaching God and maybe how that could change through Jesus. So you bow, and I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We're thankful for your word. Father, even a familiar story like this, when we slow down and we think about it, is so convicting and so encouraging. Father, and I pray that both of those realities would take place this morning, that your people would be convicted by the scriptures, that you would expose us where we need to be exposed. But Father, I pray that we would also be encouraged by the good news that Jesus Christ has done everything that needed to be done for us to be justified in your sight. And that you offer this justification not as a reward for how good we can be, but just freely when we humble ourselves before you and we put our faith in Jesus. Father, help us as a church to hold to this doctrine, this teaching of justification. Help us to treasure it. Father, help us to see Christ at the center of it. And Father, this morning as we take of the bread and as we take of the cup, we are mindful that our justification is no legal fiction. It is something that was purchased by Jesus Christ when he shed his blood for us, when he bore our sins in his body. Father, be honored as we celebrate, as we worship, as we remember. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.